And today we conclude a series that we've been in all month long that we've titled, come on, somebody say it with me, Victory, Victory. So I, the, the, the seven people knew it, but now everybody should know it. Come on, give me a strong victory. victory. Come on. Like we have victory in King Jesus, because we do. Amen. We've been in this series that is titled Victory, Jesus Reigns Supreme, and we started it uh, about four weeks ago when we kicked off Palm Sunday. And I'm going to try, try my best in kind of a rapid fashion to give you a four-week sermon recap in three minutes. Can we do it? Yeah. If you're ready, say ready. ready. If you're hungry, say let's eat. Let's eat. Let's eat. So we, we, we opened up to John 12, and we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry up to Jerusalem as he makes his way for the final Passion Week of his life. And three things we saw on Palm Sunday that I told you, I'm going to remind you of every single week. Number one, help me, he's on time. Number two, he's in control. And number three, his posture is humble. I'm so grateful for these reminders that God is an on-time God, that God is somebody who is trustworthy. He may not be on your schedule, if I'm honest, but he's always on time. You can trust his timing in this season, and you can trust that he is not wavering. He's not floundering. He's not saying, oh, what are we going to do with America? He, he is in control. In fact, he has raised up a church to be his hands and his feet that we, the body of Christ, should trust him and should respond to him. He is a God who's in control. But I love this third point. His posture toward us today is a humble posture, isn't it? Praise God that he is not in heaven with his arms crossed with a smirk on his face disappointed in us today. That through the gospel we find Jesus coming in on a donkey declaring peace. Declaring I've come to seek the lowliest and to bring reconciliation to man and God. Jesus is that mediator. His posture today is receptive toward us. Amen. So let's bring it to him, right? This is what we see on that first ever Palm Sunday. And we go from there to the cross of Jesus Christ, where on that first Good Friday, Jesus pays for all of our past sin, present sin, future sin, paid in full by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Yeah. Praise God for that reality. And Jesus takes all of our sins into the grave. But we talked about on that Easter Sunday, because Jesus rose from the grave, the good news is we can rise too. And three things that we rise above through faith in Christ is we rise above the sin that he defeated. We rise above the shame that the devil tries to throw on us. And we, rise, we even rise above ourselves when we get in the way. Come on, anybody else ever just feel like yourself gets in the way? Yep. I'm glad I'm not by myself up here because sometimes you just got to just, not just all, all the time, you just got to put yourself on the shelf, right? Shelf, shelf it. So if you're not in control, the Lord is in control. I'm, I'm trusting, I'm yielding to his lordship and leadership in my life. That's the best thing for you. It's what we see at Resurrection Sunday, but the resurrected Savior has a sermon to preach. So as we continue reading into Matthew 28, you find Jesus preaches the word. What does he say? He says, now you go and you make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that... I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He says, I want you to go to all the nations, and I want you to be a disciple maker. The same thing we've been doing, I want, 
but I'm tasking you to do it. And he talks about baptism. And I gave a message on what baptism is biblically. And I talked about how it's a, it's a sign. It's kind of like this wedding ring. This wedding ring, if you put it on, it doesn't make you married. If I take it off, it doesn't make me less married. It's a picture. It's a, it's a sign. Baptism's not what saves you. It's a sign that you've been saved. Yes. Here's the sign. No, three things. Number one, baptism is a sign of a new life. It depicts moving from death to life, that you going into that water, leave all that stuff in that water, and then rise up declaring, I'm a new creation. It doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect. It just means that I'm new and I have a Savior who paid for me, and I'm going to follow him all my days. The reason why we don't do infant baptism here is because we've never seen a baby articulate, I have a new life. I've been saved by the death, resurrection, and blood of Jesus. And so we ask everybody to get to that place where you can recognize the old self is gone. I put my faith in the risen Savior, and he's called me up to newness. When you've done that, now it's the right decision to put the sign on. You've been drafted. You've you, you got a brand new calling. Baptism is a sign that I'm, I've enrolled in the school of discipleship. I'm going to follow King Jesus. Baptism is a sign of a new association. I like to say when you get baptized, you get a new HOA. Come on, somebody. Anybody need a new HOA? Right? Maybe like they, they always getting on you for leaving your garbage cans out too long. That's just me. It's a sign of a new association. Baptism associates you with the triune Godhead. Baptism connects you with association with the Father, with the Son, and the Spirit, three in one. So maybe your past is associated with a lot of darkness and death and sin and addiction. In baptism, you declare a new association. I've associated with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Spirit of God, all with me in this moment. So again, if you need to take that step of believer's baptism, we'd love to help you take it. Love to talk with you more about it. Well, from there into Matthew, we go into the gospel in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is declaring the action of the church. And Jesus there spends 40 days after his resurrection with the disciples. In fact, not just the 12, but 72. Corinthians tells us he appeared to over 500 people during those, that 40-day period. And he was preaching about the kingdom of God. He was preaching about how the kingdom of God is the thing we should seek first. How the kingdom of God is filled with all types of cultures and all types of people, ages, ethnicities. The kingdom of God is what Jesus came to bring to earth. And during that time... Jesus closes his 40-day experience with a final word. That's where we spent last Sunday in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's look at it, and then we'll catch up where we're going today. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, and he goes on from there. We're going to talk a little bit more about this here coming up, but right here at the front, he says power. Does anybody remember the Greek word for power? dunamis, which translates to our English word dynamite. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you get filled with the dynamite power that does something to you. You, you, you can't be the same when you get in contact with the dunamis. Three things happen. I'll put them up here on the screen. Number one, the Holy Spirit enables us. Apart from him, we're dead. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our sins, we're dead in our trespasses, we're going the wrong direction. The Holy Spirit enables us to see different. The Holy Spirit enables us to feel different. Come on. The Holy Spirit enables us to feel conviction, 
The Holy Spirit enables us to have a new heart where we once had a heart of stone, Ezekiel 36. Now we get a heart of flesh that actually feels. I'm feeling. It's like the Grinch, right? It's like that little heart. The Holy Spirit gives you a new heart. He enables us, but he not only enables us, he empowers us. He empowers us. He's got the power. Doom, 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 boom. He's got the power, right? Come on. The Holy Spirit, come on, you can laugh with me a little bit. He's got the power. Here's the bad news and the good news all in one. You don't possess the power to change a thing. You couldn't resurrect a thing. He can. You need his power. His resurrection power empowers us to do stuff in our own capacity we would never be able to do. We are limited, finite beings. The Holy Spirit has always existed, and he chose to live in you. He enables and empowers us to do things that in our own strength, in our own ability. So if you ever get to this place where like, I just can't do it on my own, you're the perfect qualifier for the Holy Spirit. He goes, that's why you need me to help you, to comfort you, to counsel you, to convict you, to guide you, to empower you. The Holy Spirit exalts Christ. So just in case you think that the Holy Spirit came to just make your name known, you got it backwards. We must decrease that he must increase. The Holy Spirit is going to live out John 16, and he's going to glorify the Son in your life. Interesting, right? Check out this play by God. God the Father sends God the Son, and God the Son sends God the Spirit. And God the Spirit lifts up God the Son. They're all working together, amen? And we get to play. We get a part in his story. That's where we left off last week, and we're going to move now into this final installation of this sermon series that's titled Victory. Look back with me at Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11. If you're ready, say ready. Ready. Come on, if you're hungry, say let's eat. Let's eat. Lord, with the time remaining, I'm asking you, God, come on, pray with me. Open our, open our heart, open our eyes to see your word, open our ears to hear your voice. God, we, we don't need another message from a person. God, we need a word from your word. So speak to everybody online and in person now, we pray. Jesus name. Amen. 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 Acts chapter one, verse eight. Here's what it says. The scripture teaches us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, try to use your imagination here. As they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were there gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee. That's that's how I I read it. Morgan Freeman came out real quick. You know what I'm saying? Men of Galilee. I don't know if they said it like that. Don't email me. Men of Galilee. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you 
into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here's this moment, right? I want you to just visualize it. The disciples are there with Jesus. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses all throughout the world. And then Jesus starts floating into the air and they go, and suddenly he's in a cloud and he's gone. And the disciples are like this. Where'd he go? What just happened? Whoa. And then Jesus tasks two individuals from heaven in white robes to pull up on the disciples here with a message. And then, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, what y'all looking at? Why do you stand here looking into heaven? In other words, get moving. Didn't he just give you a mission to take the message to the ends of the earth? Come on, anybody ever run track? I don't know if we got any track out of this. What would it look like to get the baton and be like, Go! Go! What you? Jesus has passed us the baton. Holy Spirit has empowered his people to go do things that in our own strength we could not do. And then you find these two individuals that are dressed nicely in their white robes, men of Galilee. Get a move on it. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's a good word and reminder. Now, here's what I believe. I believe we today are stuck in here somewhere. We're in the in-between. We're, we're in the waiting room, right? And as this final message, I want to preach a message to you that I'm titling Victory While Waiting. Victory While Waiting. I don't know if you're in a season where you feel like you're waiting, but I want to encourage you with some practical tips and tools from the Bible on how you can experience victory even while waiting. If you're ready, say ready. ready. Let me give you the first point. It's going to be a popular one. I know it. First point, number one, here's how you can experience victory while you're waiting. Number one, work while you're waiting. In the previous service, I didn't get a single amen. It was like the balloon got let out. I'm not trying to work while I'm waiting. I want to encourage everybody here today and those online to make a difference. With the life that God has given you, be a difference maker. Leave a mark. Leave a dent. Make a difference. Here's how you can do it. Don't be a lazy Christian. Put some work in. Reality statement. Write this down. Put some work in. Come on. Tell the person next to you. Put some work in. Yo, put some work in. Come on. Put some work in. Put it in the chat. Put some work in. You got to work while you're waiting. Work is an interesting topic. I think that there needs to be almost like some redemptive thought on the subject of work. I love how Pastor Tim Keller writes on the subject of work. He says it like this. He says, the Bible begins talking about work as soon as it begins talking about anything. That is how important and basic it is. 
when you think about the topic of putting some work in, doing some work, working, you'll find in the very beginning of days, God created a man named Adam and God gave him a task to put some work in. I want you to keep the garden. I want you to till it. I want you to work it. God created a helper because it was not good for man to be alone. God creates Eve and they decide to get married and then God even calls them in Genesis 3. You're going to work. God speaks and says, work's going to be a part of this process. Toil. It's going to be some work. It's just part of how this life goes. But I've found and I've come to realize that a lot of God's answers to our prayers are actually a result of people working. That God uses regular, ordinary, mundane jobs to accomplish his mission. God uses the work to make a difference for people. And let me give you a very casual example. Somebody got up, let's say at 6 a.m., got in their car, drove to this factory, put their hard hat on, put their yellow vest on, stood in a line, and they sent down this piece of metal, and they assembled a back to it, and they assembled some legs on it. They put some little rubber things. They pushed it down, and they painted it black, and they made it fold, and they said, this right here is called a chair. And that chair got shipped to Las Vegas, and you're sitting in it. Come on. Amen. Are are you grateful for the people that made the chair? How about God chose to accomplish your caffeine fix today by calling somebody to make a coffee and you got to drink it. Come on, right? And it could have been our dream teamers who got here early. Come on to make it right? It could have been somebody who put on a green apron and served it through a drive through window. God accomplishes his provision through work. Praise God for work. Put some work in. You know, there's this book in the Bible. It's called Ecclesiastes. And it's a book that really focuses on the topic of wisdom. How can you live a wise life Well, listen to Solomon who wrote about how you can live with wisdom. But the thing that's kind of depressing about Ecclesiastes, in a lot of ways, he's saying your life's going to be, for lack of a better word, kind of sucky, (laughs) right? If you read Ecclesiastes, he's saying everything's meaningless, everything's vanity, it's going to be hard, you're going to get sad, and you're going to (laughs) die. It's like what he's, (laughs) dang, that that was with, okay. But here's what he does say in the in-between. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says it like this. He says, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? What's Solomon saying here? He's saying, put some work in and try to enjoy it while you do it. That, that's going to be your lot. Bring him. Well, what can you do? Well, after he's gone, what can he do, right? In the meantime, do your work. And try to find some, some joy in whatever it is that you do. Does anybody else feel me? Do you ever just feel like we're in like an epidemic of just people don't want to work? Yeah. It's like just to get an eye contact is tough these days. A smile, a hey, my name is here. How are you doing? Like that right there, you're like, oh, I'm leaving a big tip. They were just nice. It's like, ooh, that felt good. Night kindness felt great. Ooh. 
Like there's so much passivity and kind of lethargic, oh, woe is me, I don't want to be here, what's your order? Slap the cheese on it, you know? My, I'm challenging you Christians, I'm challenging you walk church family, don't be like that. You know, I was, I was reading, to quote from Tim Keller one more time, he says, what should the Christian pilot do? Land the plane. <laughs> and preferably do it smoothly. <laughs> What, what do we want you to do to demonstrate your faith in the workplace? Well, do your job well. Show up on time. Make a difference. Crush it. Kill it. Go all out. Make a difference with God, where God's placed you. Amen? That's my challenge to you today. You got to figure it out. And maybe the Lord might lead you to find a different place of work and trust him with that. Maybe get some counsel and go for it. I don't know what you need to do, but I know you got to put some work in. One of the verses that changed my life when I was in college, I became a Christian when I was playing college basketball and I had to figure out how does my faith relate to the game. And I came across a verse of scripture in Colossians chapter three, verse 23. It's one of the first scriptures I ever memorized. It's still with me to this day. Here's what the verse says. Whatever you do, Come on, somebody say, whatever. Whatever you do, work heartily, wholehearted, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You know what I had to learn how to do? I had to learn how to have an audience of one mentality. In other words, whether I was in the game or whether I was on the bench, I had to look in the crowd and see Jesus and recognize he's worthy of me to sit up and clap. He's worthy of me to go in the game and come in ready. He's worthy of me to give it my best and to try my hardest and to be a good teammate and to, to put my work in. He's worthy of that because whatever it is that you do, I want to encourage you to do it wholeheartedly, to trust him as for the Lord. Hey, look, I don't, I'm not doing it for man. Right, do it for the Lord then. Make a difference. Here's one more verse I want to encourage you with today. Proverbs chapter 16. Whenever I come across Proverbs 16, this verse always stirs me up. Proverbs 16 verse 3. Here's what it says. Come on, read it with me. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Take your work, whatever it is that you do, and say, God, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to commit it to you. My work is committed to him. And the Lord says, okay, I'll establish that. I'll make it happen. I'll bring some blessing on that work. I want to encourage you. Land the plane. Come on. Do the work. Somebody say, land the plane. Land the plane. Land the plane. Land the plane. Let me go ahead and give you uh, the second point. Not just work while you're waiting, but let me give you the second one. Worship while you're waiting. Yeah? yeah? Worship while you're waiting. Family, we got we to gotta worship through the storm. We got to worship while we're waiting. I heard this quote once. I don't know exactly who said it because it's been attributed to many different individuals. But while you're waiting for God to open the door, praise him in the hallway. While you're waiting for God to tell you what's next, praise him in the hallway. Praise him in the waiting room. Worship him in this season of while we're saying, Lord, I know you're going to come back someday. I believe you're going to come back just how you went up. And while I'm in the in-between, I'm going to worship you. While I'm working, while I'm waiting, I'm going to give you praise. If the first point, reality statement, was put some work in, the second point is this. Get your worship on. Get your worship on. I want to encourage you to get 
your worship on. Figure out what that looks like for you. Get your worship on. I was reading this quote um, by a revivalist pastor, A.W. Tozer. Tozer convicted me with this word. He said it like this. Any man or woman on this earth who is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Hello. And I know that's a word for somebody. And let me just say, I can relate to the individual who's here right now and says, you know what? This, the whole singing thing is not really my thing. And like, what are, what are the people thinking of me? And like, why are people lifting their hands and shouting and all that? I remember being there once myself. I had to learn how to worship into worship. And then one day I just, you know, you, you kind of go from like the $5 foot long Jesus, you know, to touchdown Jesus, right? I'm not saying that your body posture is necessarily an expression of the depth of your worship. Don't, don't miss, hear me on what I'm saying, but I want to encourage you. If you're bored or turned off by the worship, you really are going to struggle in eternity because that party up there is turned up and it's all types of different languages and all types of different cultures and tribes and tongues and nations all gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ. He's the center of it. And so we get a little bit of that at church, don't we? So I want to encourage you to get your worship on. Get here every Sunday. Get here early. Get here early for the worship. Learn how to worship. Find some songs. Get your praise on. Change maybe some of the music you listen to on the way to work. Do what you got to do to get your worship on. Get, start, start to put some stuff in you that's going to help you worship him. Now, let me go ahead and say, with that, with that being said, let me also add that worship is more than singing. Worship is more than praising. Worship is more than playing an instrument. That's a form of worship, but it's not all of worship. Can I say that worship is a lifestyle? Worship is what we do. Worship is what we say. Worship is what we think. Worship is us. There's this verse in Romans chapter 12 that always speaks to me when I think about the topic of worship. Look at verse one with me. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, I'm, I'm appealing to you, Romans. Don't miss this. He's saying, I want you to consider the topic of sacrifice. Now, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, there was the sacrificial law system. And what would happen is you would bring some sort of animal, depending on the sacrifice that was being made, and you would have that animal killed, and then you would present this animal on the altar as a sacrifice for the specific sin or subject you were making the sacrifice for. What we believe is that Jesus was the final sacrifice, which is why John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes, this, takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the final sacrifice in the system. And now that same Jesus with that same blood covers us. And Paul says, we don't need a sacrificial system anymore. But what if we all just decided to live as living sacrifices, which is kind of a contradiction because sacrifices were dead. Paul's redeeming this idea and saying, no, no, we're a living sacrifice that says, Lord, I'm yours. Does anybody remember back in the day, like way before 2020, <laughs> right? Where we used to pass the baskets. It was like pass the offering, right? 
I want you to imagine if you could just get a life-size one and just put yourself in there and say, Lord, I'm yours. Use me. Pour me out. Spend me. I'm not going to move and shake and squeal. I'm an offering. I'm a sacrifice. But I'm living. In other words, while you're waiting, worship. While you're waiting, ask the Lord, what should I do today? Ask the Lord, where should I go today? Ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want? You know what? Can I just say something? This is off the notes. Because I, I counsel a lot of people. A lot of people call me with their problems, which I signed up for. I get it. And so often I find myself saying, what's God telling you to do? It fascinates me how many people have not yet asked that question. I'm like, yo, why? you're going to ask me before you ask him. Some people already know the answer. You should make it right with your wife. You should make it right with your husband. You should go home. You should forgive. You should trust him. You should come back to church. I'm like, yo, ask the Lord. He's got a book. You would do well to trust him. What if you said, you know what? I'm a living sacrifice. My worship is my obedience. I trust him. I'm going to worship him by saying, God, I'm going to I'm going to follow your instruction. Can I just tell you, if you wake up tomorrow morning and say, God, what do you want me to do today? Sometimes, don't even expect a big answer. He'll say, go to work. Get going. Do a great job. Gotta. Some of y'all are like, this is too much for me right now. Stop sinning. What should I do, pastor? Stop sinning. Are you a living sacrifice or not? Or is it you plus? I want my cake, and then Jesus gets a little... A little cut of that. You got to give him the whole thing and trust that he's got even better things in store for your life. Somebody say worship while waiting. Worship while you're waiting. I just gave you just a snapshot. That's oftentimes that's my job is to tell you to trust God. And I found that God, he's such a better pastor than me. And, and, and he, he knows what's best for your life. So the question marks, everybody in this room is in some type of waiting season. Waiting for something. Trust the Lord. Let me give you the third and final point. If you're ready, say ready. First one was work while you're waiting. Second one was worship while you're waiting. Third and final point is witness while you're waiting. While you're waiting, you've got a message to share. While you're waiting for Jesus to return, Keep the gospel fresh on your lips. Be, be ready to be a witness. What is a witness? Let me go ahead and define the word witness. It's interesting. It's this Greek word, martis, right? It's this idea of being a martyr for the faith. It's I, I, I declared something with my life and my faith. It's evidence. In a legal sense, one who gives evidence regarding matters of fact under inquiry. It's this idea to be a witness is in a, in a legal context. It means that you, you're going to testify. My question to you is, do you got anything to share? Do you, are, do you have any evidence on your life that you could even be a witness? Okay, hold on. This, this is not making sense to some of y'all. Let me go back to, let me back up to Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit enables us and empowers us, right? Acts chapter one, verse eight. Can we just take a quick glance at it? But you will receive dunamis power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what's the first evidence of the spirit of God? 
and you will be my witnesses. You will become a witness to what Jesus Christ can do in a sinful, broken individual. All of a sudden now you are taking the stand and saying he did it in me. He could do it in you. I got hope. I got faith. I got a new life. I got a witness. Can I get a witness? Come on, right? Be a witness. That's the third idea. Be a witness. So the first one is put some work in. The second one, fam, get your worship on. The third one, while you're waiting, be a witness. You have something to share. I love this quote by a pastor named Warren Wearsby. He writes on the subject. Wearsby says it like this. He says, let God be the judge. Your job today is to be a witness. Listen, brothers and sisters, we don't need you being the judge. Trust God with the judging. You be a witness. Testify to what God has done in your life. There's this verse in 1 Peter that has moved me when it comes to witness. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Now, isn't it interesting that Peter's writing about this? Because Peter had the opportunity to be a witness, and he totally backed out, right? I don't even know him. I, I promise, I don't know him. Yeah, you're the Galilean fisherman. We know it's you. You walked on water. No, I don't. Peter totally blew it on the witness. What's great is in the book of Acts, Peter's back up. He's filled with the Spirit. And he says, I'm not going to miss my chance again. And Peter is one of the most ferocious evangelists that we know of in the book of Acts. Well, in 1 Peter 3, he says it like this. He says that we should always be prepared. Oh, come on. Let me double click on prepared. We should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. In other words, Peter Peter expected people to ask you, where you get that hope? Come on, we should all be hope dealers in here. Amen? Everybody in here should have such a vibrant hope on our lives that we want to just give it away. People should be like, yo, you just got a different type of hope. Your expectancy must be in something different. Can you defend it? Be prepared to defend the hope that's in you. Give a reason for it. Say, you know what? I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. The Savior called me his own. He shed his blood for me, and he shed his blood for you. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And one day we're going to go to eternity. And you're either going to go to one or two places. You're either going to go to heaven eternity, you're going to go to a hell eternity. And both are literal places that last for a lifetime. And I don't want you to go to hell. I want you to go. I want you to be with me. Go there with people. Amen. I want you to be with me and be a witness, be a soul winner, but make sure you do it. The text says with gentleness and respect. I know sometimes I can be guilty of missing this last part. I can get too hyped up, get a little too amped up. Sometimes people don't want to necessarily engage in the conversation and then we lose the gentleness and that's when we got to reel it back. And then we start getting disrespectful. And that's why I would, I would encourage you in this process of being a witness, just make sure you do it rightly. Do it wisely. You'll hear somebody say, yo, don't ruin your witness. But use your witness. Move with witness. Be a witness while you're waiting. I'll, I'll close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers. He, he called this soul winning. I love that idea. Soul winning. 
Come on, right? We want to win some souls. It says, soul winning is the chief business of the Christian minister. It should be the main pursuit of every true believer. Every true believer, if you really believe in Jesus, we should be thinking about winning souls. While we're waiting, we should be winning. You know, I, I heard a, a, a leader share this thought a while back. It kind of messed me up. He said, I'm trying to remember the moment. He said, uh, I'm so glad Jesus didn't come back yet. And I was like, I've never heard it. someone say it that way. He says, because if he came back too soon, this person wouldn't have got saved. This person wouldn't have got, became a believer. I'm still praying for my family members that don't believe in Jesus. I'm, hold on a little bit longer, Jesus. We're trying to win some more souls. We got some work to do. Come on. We got some work to do. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 24, right? He talks about while we're waiting. In Matthew 24, verse 14, look at this verse. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. While we're waiting, we better be working. While we're waiting, we better be worshiping. While we're waiting, we better be witnessing for his glory. Amen? Amen. Come on, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word today. And God, I know I needed it. And God, I, I would imagine that somebody did in here as well. And so God, I know that different people are waiting for kids to come home. I know different people are waiting for marriages to be restored. God, I know people are waiting in this room for health, complications and reports to come back. And God, help us to worship through the waiting. And God, I recognize there might be somebody online or in the room here today that doesn't know you yet. And I want to invite you to get to know him now. Just through this prayer of faith, you can enter into a relationship with God. Would you pray with me? Father, right now I believe. I believe you died for all of my sins on the cross. I believe it. I believe that you rose from the grave, defeating all of my sin. Lord, I believe it. And Father, I ask you now by faith, would you fill me with the Holy Spirit so that I can be a witness? Help me as I work. Help me as I wait. Help me as I watch. Help me as I worship. Help me as I witness. As I wait for you to return, I believe, Lord, and I'll follow you now. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.